One Week, One Year, a podcast where we discuss a year of film history every episode, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. And this week, we're going to be talking about 1922, the Roaring Twenties. I am uh, one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I am a film projectionist, and right after I leave this episode, I have to go project a film on 35. Uh, so, actively, uh, <laughs> joining, joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell. I'm a filmmaker. I don't have any plans to make a film this afternoon, but you know what? Maybe I'll get doing some writing or something like that. So, you've inspired me. It's a part of the filmmaking process. Absolutely. So all of you, all of you out there listening or watching on uh, on YouTube or online, just want to notify you, remind you that uh, you can listen to our podcast in many formats. Uh, we are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the podcast places, um, and we make it so that you can just listen if you like. But then we are also a YouTube show, so uh, you can watch along with us. Because all this stuff is copyright free, supposedly, uh, and so unless some uh, French companies for, for, get in our for way a, for uh, at least the next what six episodes, yeah, yeah, then we have to figure out something new. <laughs> <laughs> uh, despite our issues uh, with companies claiming that they own public domain footage and and mm. stopping our videos from being published, hypothetically, all of this stuff is public domain so we can run it alongside our our lovely voices Indeed. uh mine mine is sick so it's not that lovely uh, uh it's, just, it's, got, it's got it's just it's got it's got weight it's got timbre you know mm -hmm. it's got texture i'm always i'm always chasing after the timbre and texture <laughs> uh so so you can go on youtube and watch along if you like uh with all that said glenn how you doing what's up uh, not much. Um, I'm excited for uh, this episode, but also next episode, because we're doing a field trip, so that'll be fun. Yeah, we're going to be reporting live from the Kansas Silent Film Festival, and we're both going to be taking some cheap flights into Topeka and, uh, and, and getting our safety last and covered wagon on. Uh, I'm excited to see Safety Last in a theater. I think it'll be very cool. Me too. And also, um, I think, Glenn, this might be the first time since the beginning of the podcast that you've seen a uh, live-scored silent film. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that that is exciting. That's very exciting. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm also excited about that. Um, and I guess that's the main thing going on for me, too. Uh, so now that yeah. we're done with the How You Doing segment... Let's let's uh let's move on to uh one one of our favorite segments, one that we don't always uh <laughs> push till the last second to write. Uh Of course not. The news. We we would never. Yeah, no, no. Uh the news of the year uh to give us a little context for what is going on in 1922. So take it away, Glenn. The news of the year 1922. The United Kingdom's protectorate over Egypt ends, granting it independence. Mahatma Gandhi's campaign against British imperialism reaches a new chapter as he is arrested for sedition. In the wake of the Great War, hyperinflation strikes Germany. In 1919, the exchange was 12 marks to a dollar. At the dawn of this year, it's up to 563. 
Rebecca Latimer Felton becomes the first female U.S. Senator. The March on Rome begins the reign of the fascist party and its leader Benito Mussolini in Italy. Update. The exchange rate of German marks to American dollars is now 1,000. No, 3,000. Howard Carter and his men discover the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Have they unleashed a mummy's curse on the world? The British Broadcasting Company arrives on the airwaves. The Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America is founded. By the end of the year, the exchange rate of marks to dollars is now 7,000 to 1. The German economy has run amok. Murder in Tinseltown. Director William Desmond Taylor is shot in his home. Is Hollywood a hotbed for crime and corruption? And that is some of the news of 1922. Yeah, yeah. To give us a little more context, the motion picture producers and distributors of America uh, is uh, the kind of institutors, the enforcers of the uh, infamous Hayes Code. Mm. Which is kind of, I mean, William Desmond Taylor's murder is kind of one of the, the big instigators of that. Yeah, corruption and, and debauchery in Hollywood. Uh, yeah. mean that we've got to bring the Catholics in to uh, to tell us <laughs> exactly what's what's okay and what's not. Um, yeah, the, the the that murder is still unsolved, um, but some of the suspects at the time were uh, like um, uh, um, Mabel Normand was a friend of William Desmond Taylor. Not our Mabel. Some stuff. Yeah, no, Ma- Mabel in the news again. For being a murder suspect, even if she definitely did not do it, hmm. we're coming down on that. We're coming, yeah. we're coming, we're coming down with our uh, the the official stance of the podcast is, is that Naval uh, Norman did not shoot William Desmond Taylor. Yeah, <laughs> I think she was maybe one of the last people to like see him alive, though, which is pretty nuts. Hmm. Other than whoever the murderer. Are we a true crime podcast now? I guess so, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's not enough of those. Instead, we're a movie podcast, because there aren't (laughs) enough of those either. Not enough with our gimmick. We've got a a gimmick. We do have a good gimmick. (laughs) Anyway, speaking of movies, let's talk about the movies that we watched. Let's be two guys, two, two men, talking about... Uh, movies that we watched. <laughs> let's let's get into our segment one week one real where we talk about uh, mostly <laughs> two real movies. <laughs> yeah, where we talk about some shorties, some short films, which uh, maybe the the line between feature film and short film is a little blurry at this point, and mm-hmm. you know some of these things. I feel like what we're calling the cutoff at this point is maybe like forty five minutes or fifty minutes. To become a feature film. Yeah. Uh, it's like four reels or more. Five reels or more. Hard to say. I think, that's kind of, I think that's kind of how they cut it off at the time. But, yeah. Um, let's, because we're guys being dudes, let's start off with uh, the one about baseball. Casey at the bat. <laughs> <laughs> this is an experimental film from this time, but not like the ones that we talked about last last episode. Right. Yeah. Uh, it is uh, a sort of technological experiment of uh, synchronized sound on film. 
The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Matthew Nine that day. The score stood four to two, with but one inning more to play. And so when Cooney died at first, and Burroughs did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. Once again, uh, every time somebody tells you that something happened for the first time in the silent era, they are uh, lying to you. Yeah. Uh, because it wasn't... Or, or leaving leaving out some big qualifiers. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, this, unlike the jazz singer, which we will get to, uh, this is... Uh, the jazz singer uses um, a technology called Vitaphone, which is basically uh, putting a cue somewhere to start a record. And then mm-hmm. the record is playing... Uh, the audio in synchronization hypothetically with uh, the film itself where this, this is a six minute uh, short of, uh, of just like a vaudeville performer reading a poem about the Mm -hmm. glory of baseball. About baseball. (laughs) Take me out to the ball game type stuff. And, but in, but in very old timey vaudeville speak. Yeah. And really just, like, like glorifying and... Rolling the R's. <laughs> uh, but this is actual sound uh, that is printed on the film in the way that it yeah. is today um, for 35mm prints that are still made today. Uh, and uh, the way that it has been done ever since the sound era, uh, mm-hmm. up until the digital era. Uh, this is the... 1921-22, this era is um, the the beginning of this format uh, that was invented by Lee DeForest of photofilm, sound on film. Mm-hmm. No, phonofilm, right? Oh, yes, phonofilm, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, I feel like, you know, everyone talks about the jazz singer as like the beginning of talkies, which I mean, it it is in terms of... Uh, like culturally culturally and popularity and but i think it's interesting that this movie's uh significantly earlier i mean it's a short it's not really a film so much as it's just a recording of a poem being read but like the technology of faunal film is i don't know it i mean i guess more advanced right because it is i mean it's i think so what leads to the technology that becomes kind of standard for you know the next 90 years yeah yeah i mean it is it 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 doesn't have the potential downsides of um vitaphone where Mm -hmm. um there are two separate objects that are playing the film and playing the audio and i think that vitaphone can get out of sync i'm not sure but like there are some safeguards but like the 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 bonus of this is that it is on the film itself so Mm -hmm. uh yeah it has all of the benefits when it comes to splicing and when it comes to, uh, you know, potential sound getting, um, mm-hmm. messed up that it is, uh, it is right there on the film. So that's good. Yeah. Other watching it other than the sort of technological significance of it and other Fano films from around this time, it's like as, as its own object, I guess I, I, it's, it's whatever. It's a guy reading a poem about baseball. Yeah, who cares? Yeah, it's a guy stepping <laughs> out from a curtain 
and uh and yeah being all kind of old-timey fancy and and talking about the glory of baseball which i don't care about (laughs) uh what i care about is is film uh uh to get to get a little in depth on the technology um this uses so the way that sound is printed on film uh is uh it's just kind of in a strip on the edge of the image uh in between the, the sprocket holes uh and it's it's like um the way that the way that modern film or or film from you know the 30s or whatever on uh does this is by using uh variable area uh sound which is uh basically like looks like a waveform printed on the side of the film you can um, see it in the logo for this show. Indeed you can. Indeed you can. You can see this in every episode, every piece of episode <laughs> art. That's a good note. <laughs> uh, that is uh, a photo that I took of a King Kong print and uh, that, that we have placed other photos in. So that audio, that audio, you could actually look at that waveform and, uh, and extract some tiny 24th of a second chunk of audio from King Kong copyright uh, probably copyright infringement what, <laughs> airplane noise yes yeah i think it was around that uh that scene in the movie uh this uses variable density so it does not look like a waveform like in the podcast mm. logo it uh basically looks like um a bunch of like it almost looks like a barcode in a way, but with hmm. like shades of gray. Uh, so the way that this technology works is there's like a light emitter and a sensor on either side of the strip. And the more light that's let through, it like changes, um, it changes like the pitch of the audio. Hmm. This works in the same way. And these can actually like variable density and variable area, uh, sound can be read on the same readers because, uh, it's the same size strip, it, and it's letting across different degrees of audio. Uh, right. But it, um, but yeah, it's it's basically like how dark the film is versus mm-hmm. um, how much of the film is dark. Basically, yeah, that's uh, it's crazy. A little, it's a little in the weeds, but I'm a projectionist. Yeah. What do you want from me? <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I I I find it very very interesting and just to think about like the 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 engineering that it took to figure this stuff out when it hadn't been done before is is always very um i just find very interesting oh yeah oh yeah i feel like it since right since basically the 1930s i feel like film technology like 35 millimeter film technology has been so standardized um basically until digital took over yeah, um, but it's just like a decade ago. Just to figure all that stuff out is like, and the the stuff that like the roads not taken out are always really interesting. Of things like phytophone or like early color processes, which we'll also talk about this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's an exciting time for film technology. For sure, yeah. There's going to be a lot of uh, technology stuff in this episode. Yeah, it's going to be a very, very tech-heavy episode. 
Speaking of, there's a, a YouTube channel that I highly recommend. I, I love this channel called um, uh, called Technology Connections, and uh, he recently did a video about sound on film that touches on Ooh. Lee DeForest and uh, the way that the way that all of this stuff works. Uh, and if anybody's interested in that, I would highly recommend it. I'll I'll link it in the show notes. <clears throat> cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that out too. Um. So yeah, this this is we're just talking about this from a technological perspective. We don't really care about this movie as a thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like it's it's an example of there's like a bunch of these Fano films being made. Yeah. As um, like a demo. Just, yeah. This is just kind of one of them. And yeah, they they exist kind of mostly as tech demos. Yeah. It's like. Yeah, they play in a few theaters, but they're really meant to be like shown to uh, studios to sell mm-hmm. them on, on this technology. Yeah. Uh, let's... How to segue into other shorts. <laughs> we don't always have to have a, a segue, I suppose. <laughs> uh, cops. Cops. With yeah. my Buster Keaton and Eddie Klein. Indeed. Um... I thought this was kind of weirdly dark for a Buster Keaton movie. <laughs> yeah. At least the the ending of it, anyway. <laughs> yes, it, it, it ends with him getting caught by the cops, and then there is a tombstone that says Buster Presu- Keaton. Yeah, presumably beaten to death. <laughs> and it's got his, his signature hat on the tombstone. Yeah, they left his pork pie on, on the tombstone. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've seen some kind of... Uh, supposition that because this was being filmed around the trial of Roscoe mm-hmm. Arbuckle, that it, it could have influenced the, the darkness of the, of this one. It's still funny. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Um, I also read that. I That might be entirely true. I feel like there's not a lot in the text of this movie that necessarily reflects that. Like, there's no direct yet, evidence, for sure. The idea of someone comedically running away from a bunch of cops is... Uh, <laughs> Kind of the oldest trick in the book. I know this is like this is like harkening back to like an early genre of running from cops movies. That, but like that was very very early. I feel like you know Aliski made running from cop movies. Like mm-hmm. those are that was almost right away. They're like how how can we make a comedy with motion picture? <laughs> have people running from cops? This short also opens with. Uh, a really a, a shot that I really like, um, where uh, it has this like subversion in the style of the beginning of the Charlie Chaplin movie The Immigrant, uh, where it looks like Buster Keaton is in jail, uh, mm. but he is just talking to uh, talking to a lady on the other side of a gate in a park. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but just just that like playing with what's in the frame mm-hmm. and like that kind of thing is. Uh, I don't know, I feel like in 1912, like 10 years before this, I feel like that wouldn't have even necessarily occurred to people as much. And that's a big thing with Buster Keaton, too, of like playing with the framing of things and like perspective and, and figuring out how to like frame something in the funniest possible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like if we were to compare it to the, the similar thing in The Immigrant, where... Um, uh, you know, at the beginning of the movie, you see him like, like hunched over the edge of a boat, and it looks like he's seasick. But it turns out that he's fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's a similar it's a similar joke where it's like a reveal of like something less severe than it looks. But yeah. uh this one, as you're as you're noting, is telling telling the joke with the camera rather than yeah. just with the motion or the action. It's like that joke wouldn't work in any other medium. Right. I guess it could work in a comic book, but like yeah. in terms of like you couldn't do it on the stage, you know? Um and uh yeah there's there's a um a couple other sort of like I mean there's a very famous stunt in this one of Buster Keaton grabbing onto a moving car and like getting yanked off screen by it which I, I guess he just did for real <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised I saw I saw that I've seen that clip before but like I I saw it and I just like my mouth dropped I was like <laughs> yeah I was I was shocked at just Buster Keaton's recklessness. <laughs> yeah. It looks like a cartoon. Like it doesn't. Yeah. It kind of doesn't look real just because of how like goofy it is. Um, it's a great, it's a great stunt. It's a great shot. Yeah. Um, probably dislocated a really, his arm while he was doing probably. it. Probably. There's a really good, um, there's an episode of Edward Frame of Painting, the great YouTube series, uh, about Buster Keaton and how, like, how he frames stuff and how he kind of approaches uh, physical comedy in like filmmaking, um, which I'd seen before, but I revisited for this after watching this movie. Um, and yeah, just shout out to every camera painting. <laughs> they don't, they don't know. G film essayist. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, no, this movie is basically just uh, Buster Keaton, uh, sort of inadvertently uh, or sort of accidentally ends up throwing a bomb into a crowd during a police parade. And so then he has an entire parade of uh, police after him and they're just kind of chasing him around. There's, there's also just like a lot of um, people like accidentally stealing things in this Mm -hmm. movie. Uh, There, uh, he he sees a horse that has a sign on it that says five dollars, and he he just gives a random guy standing next to the horse five bucks, walks away with the horse, and then you know you see that it it is a sign for a suit and not a horse. But even that is the thing where it's like the horse is blocking part of the sign. Yeah, and then he takes the horse away and reveals the full like that's the sort of there's a lot of that kind of thing in yeah. Buster Keaton movies. I you know as we were touching on with the last episode, I see, I'm noticing that I see a lot more, uh, Looney Tunes DNA in Buster Keaton Mm. than in like Charlie Chaplin, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that, that thing with the horse is a very Looney Tunes joke. I feel like as well. For sure. (coughs) Another like kind of weird thing, uh, that I took note of is, um, as he's holding this sort of cartoon bomb with like the, big fuse coming out of it. He lights a cigarette with it, which is exactly how Harold Lloyd blew off his fingers. Is he was he was lighting a cigarette with what he thought was a prop bomb and it was a real bomb. Oh my god, I didn't re- <laughs> And it blew up in his hand. Um so I I don't know if that was uh, a deliberate sort of reference to that because that doesn't happen, but um maybe there's just a, a common a common gag is is lighting a cigarette with a bomb. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty iconic. If it were less cartoony, it would be, it would be cool in like an 80s action movie. Yeah. In an 80s action movie, it would be like, 
uh, I feel like a bundle of dynamite or something like that. It wouldn't be a yeah a, like round fuse, you know? <laughs> like yeah, a Looney Tunes thing. Um, one other thing that I uh, see, I don't know if this the origin of this image is is from this movie or not, but uh, and part of the movie, Buster Keaton is driving uh, like a big carriage. And he's trying to, like, do, like, turn signals with his hand. And mm. he uh, gets this kind of, like, extending, like, clothes rack thing. Uh, those, like, kind of scissor arms that you, yeah. that you squeeze together and they extend really far. And then he puts a boxing glove on the end of it. Uh, <laughs> and he's using it to do turn signals. But I'm like, is this is this new? Is this, like, is this... <laughs> that that yeah. the origin of that extending boxing the glove extending thing. boxing glove thing it might be like as far as i know sure uh so he initially is trying to use it for turn signaling but then he yeah. he clocks a cop in the face yeah uh, naturally he ends up punching <laughs> someone with his punching with his boxing glove his, his extendo bucks boxing glove punching machine he 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 can't type though uh, he, uh, do you have any, oh, oh yeah, uh, I have one more note on this movie, which is, uh, when he's on this horse-drawn carriage, um, there's a point where the horse kind of starts getting tired and losing its, uh, vitality, uh, and so he takes it into a goat gland clinic, um, <laughs> which, <clears throat> if any of you have, I actually haven't seen this, but I just know that this documentary, but I know the story of, uh, John R. Brinkley, uh, legendary huckster. Um, there's a documentary called nuts. That's about him, uh, where, uh, he surgically implanted goat testicles in many, many men to, uh, <laughs> to revive their vitality. Mm. Uh, uh <laughs> Wikipedia lists him as like his occupation as charlatan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, I guess it's a reference to that guy because like he, uh, brings, he brings the horse into this clinic and then the horse has got all of this extra energy. Oh, whatever. damn. I, I see. I completely missed that gang. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. And then he, and then he, he sees the horse and he's like, Oh, it looks pretty good. And then he goes in himself to <laughs> get implanted with, uh, <laughs> with goat balls. <laughs> Uh, do you have anything else on cops? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's like, I, I think it's a good example of the types of gags that Buster Keaton is doing of like really, some really wild stunt stuff and also like really creative use of framing and like, uh, yeah, just like visual storytelling stuff. Bad boys, bad boys. Um, but it also is like, not, I don't know, like, uh, one week was a lot better, I thought. Mm, yeah. In terms of, like, it's, it's whole setup and it's sort of, um, I think Buster Keaton is still, at least with the shorts, is still very much in the mode of just, like, very, the loosest possible setup of plot and then just sort of, like, as many gags as he can ring out of it. That's true. It's definitely, like, you know, Chaplin's trying to start, like, elevating it a little bit, you yeah. know? And this is elevated slapstick. <laughs> our our other uh, one reelers are a tale of uh, some dueling 
uh, <laughs> dueling adaptations of the same story. I mean, I don't know if they were dueling necessarily, if they were ever in competition. They're in competition for, for me. I go. like one better than the other one. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> These are uh, Cinderella by Lottie Reiniger and Walt Disney. Indeed. Well, Cinderella by Walt Disney and Auschenbrudel um, by Lotte Reiniger. <laughs> yes. Um, I guess maybe start with the Disney one because that's sort of the more traditional, I guess. Yeah. Um, it looks like it's kind of made in the style of um, the uh, Fleischer cartoons of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, very much so. It just cartoony. 2D animation, a little choppy, but mm-hmm. uh, using a lot of the same kind of visual language. Um, yeah. This was made at Disney's Laugh-O-Gram Studios, which was... Well, I mean, he didn't even own Laugh-O-Gram Studios. He was just an animator there, I thought. I thought he founded it. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. I think... I don't know. We can... <laughs> I, what I read is that he founded Laugh-O-Gram Studios when he was 19 with, uh, with oh, his okay. brother. Um, and, uh, that is in Kansas city and, uh, we will be visiting the site of, of Laugh-O-Gram Studios very soon. <laughs> the, the empty shell that was once Laugh-O-Gram Studios. Yeah. So you know, Disney made a number of, uh, laughing telegrams, um, <laughs> uh, until his company went under and he went to LA and founded, uh, uh, the Disney company that owns... Uh, our lives and Avatar Indeed. and yeah. uh, Iron Man <laughs> and Star Wars. Uh, but this is this is where it started out. Um, these these laughograms, uh, and yeah, this one's it's nice. It's, it's a kind of a, a pretty. I think we haven't really got into them that much, but like like the early twenties style of animation of like dancing. With like jelly limbs, and there's there's a winky moon. Yeah, um, I mean, I would say it's not even that advanced yet of those like rubber hose animation. It's it's still like uh, almost like um, using the language of comic strips, uh, and mm-hmm. it's like a little herky jerky in the, yeah. the that like early Felix way and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the prince in this movie is introduced as described as a wonderful fellow. Um, but the first scene we see him, him is him hunting and killing an entire, not just a, like a family of bears, like an entire bear community. Yeah. Who are all like happy and dancing and he just goes in and murders all of them. It's, it's an, it's and, strange juxtaposition. <laughs> and I'm like, is this ironic? Is this like, oh, the prince isn't actually a wonderful fellow. He's a, a, a mass murderer of bears. But it's the olden times that might've just been like, yeah, he's great. It What's ma- not to like? It makes me think uh, back to that. But uh, then why why show the bears are like happy? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're all like playing saxophone really aggressively or whatever uh, yeah. until until the the lovely prince comes to destroy them. Uh, it, yeah, it reminded me of the uh, oh god, I'm forgetting the title. It was like the 1907 or something like that, like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Oh, yeah. Uh, where, the, where, where Teddy Roosevelt shows up at the end and kills all the bears. Yeah. Uh, hilarious. Amazing. Um, <laughs> this 
the the time period of this one is a little strange. It like uh it like has some kind of modern elements to it, even though like some mm-hmm. of it seems a little old timey. Uh, when Cinderella gets her carriage, it's like a car, and uh, yeah. and her her glow up is looking a bit like a flapper. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I it's, was it is fun. like yeah, it's it's uh, it's like a contemporary telling of Cinderella, very very loose telling of Cinderella. Um, there's one gag in this that I really liked, uh, which is uh, the prince is like going after. Uh, trying to find uh, Cinderella, and he's like following footsteps, and uh, at the end of the footsteps uh, he sees a duck, and and then and then then you're like, okay, I guess like the trail ends and there's a duck there, and then the duck stands up and it's wearing shoes (laughs) and and walks away. Uh, I, I like that bit a lot. That is a very good, very good bit. Um, I, I, I think the better of these two though, is the, the German one. Yeah. Which is, uh, a different type of animation than we're used to seeing, I guess. It is all, uh, sort of cut out, uh, silhouettes. So it's sort of like not, it is animation. It's not actual puppetry, but it sort of looks like shadow puppets sort of exists somewhere between shadow puppets and traditional animation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got this sort of like paper cutout look. Um, but yeah, all in sort of the sort of uh, black and white silhouette uh, yeah. visual style. It's really elegant, I think. Uh, yeah. The animation. Um, it's it's more flowing and and smooth than the animation um, in these cartoons, even though, uh, you know, it is made with like physical items, like they're, Mm -hmm. they're animated at kind of a higher frame rate. Uh, I think it like looks really nice. Mm -hmm. Um, It does the thing. It does the thing in a lot of early animation where it it feels the need to like explain how it was made at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, I know (laughs) they can't resist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it starts off with like a pair of hands uh, cutting the figures uh, in silhouette, and then you know they kind of become puppets. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this one is uh, quite a bit darker than the Disney Laughogram version. Um, it keeps the thing from the fairy tale of one of the stepsisters uh, cutting off her foot to fit into the slipper. Oh, I didn't realize that was that was in the original fairy tale. I saw that and yeah. I jumped out of my seat. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it gets dark. Um, there's also a bit. I mean, this is in the English intertitles. I don't know if this is just a weird translation thing, but right in the beginning, there's a bit where someone says, "There's no place in court for a slut." I'm like, oh, oh, damn. Okay, yeah. that her stepsi- her stepsisters are very mean <laughs> and and um, not third wave at all. Yeah, so this is uh, this is not the the sanitized Disney version. <laughs> this is the this is the this edgy is... German version. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, this is so this is made by Lottie Reiniger, um, mm-hmm. who uh, I she has um, 
made a couple of short films. This is one of the longer ones that she's made so far. Uh, and in a couple of years, she'll make uh, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Uh, in this, And all of her films are in this style. Uh, that movie that I just mentioned is a feature animated film, uh, which, once again, uh, a lot of people go around saying that Snow White is the first mm-hmm. animated film. Yeah. Uh, or feature film, but it is not. Uh, and I, in this movie, though, I, I love the style of this. I think that, like, the imagery in it is so cool. Um, mm-hmm. With the silhouettes and and just the the way that she's shooting it, she's able to play with the frame in so many really interesting ways. Yeah, um, change the shape of the frame and like move it around. Uh, mm-hmm. Have like jagged edges and like things revealing themselves. Uh, and yeah, just the way the characters move is it's just like it's beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know how much of it like a direct influence. Um, her animation had on later things, but it's definitely, I see this pop up in other things of like shadow puppety animation stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that, uh, uh, Reiniger invented that I think Disney also kind of got credit for is, uh, multi-pane, a multi-pane camera. So having like multiple sort of, uh, multiple panes or multiple uh, images sort of spread out and then a camera capturing all of them and kind of compressing them into a single image. Mm-hmm. To, um, to, to provide some kind of like parallax and depth of field and that kind of thing. Yeah. Which is, uh, I, I, I don't know if they were just invented separately in different countries and, you know, one of them got credit and the other one didn't, or if like, the Disney technique actually did sort of use uh, her multi-pane camera as inspiration. I don't know. Now, from but. from what I saw, um, she invented it a good number of years before Disney, quote-unquote, invented it. Mm-hmm. And he was, like, directly inspired by her process. Okay, cool. So, as, as expected, stole it. Great. <laughs> um, not off to a great start, Disney. He's, he's a complicated guy. <laughs> Yeah, he's a complicated fella. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a good example of a thing that we run into a lot of, like, the 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 generally accepted beginning of something that actually started way earlier and by different people. Yeah, and, like, these kind of famous men of film history having just, like, lifted things and called it their <laughs> own, basically. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> even, yeah, even the... The Laughogram kind of animation feels very, very Fleischer inspired. Like mm-hmm. it is basically taking the Fleischer Brothers animation and just kind of not necessarily copying it wholesale, but just very much uh, lifting that kind of stylization and probably the technique of it. Also, yeah, yeah. Uh, although I, I, Disney might have used animation cells, and I know that Fleischer tried to avoid using them. Uh, mm-hmm. For and, and go on paper for uh, yeah. licensing reasons. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that I want to say, one like small note about this uh, Lottie Reiniger Cinderella that I want to say is there is a like a like genius genius like v- visual storytelling uh, piece in it, uh, which is um, 
you know, this there isn't really dialogue in this movie so much. Like it's told like in a, like as a narrator, um, mm-hmm. and and then everything else is kind of like acted out and like visually told to you. Yeah, uh, and the way that it displays the um the the time at her time at the party getting close to the end is there is like a clock. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these Cinderella adaptations, they will cut back to a clock. Oh no, it's getting close to midnight. For some reason, in this, it's one in the morning, but uh, it's getting close to midnight. Like, like what? You know, the the tension is increasing, right? Um, in this, on the clock, the hour hand has a silhouette of Cinderella, and the minute hand has a silhouette of the prince, and so it keeps cutting back to the clock with the minute hand getting closer to the hour hand mm. as, as it gets closer to 1 a.m. And it, as it cuts back, it's the, the, the prince and Cinderella bonding. So they're getting closer to each other emotionally. But then the figures of them are getting closer to each other on the clock. But then the tension is ratcheting up because as they get closer to each other, they're getting, for, they're getting to a point where they have to get away from each other. Their time it, is running out. It's such a good visual metaphor. It's so it's genius. It's, yeah. it's so good. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this movie's awesome. I think it's really <laughs> cool. <laughs> it is. I was. I was very. I didn't really know about about it until like a week ago. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we're covering it. Yeah, we almost didn't watch this this because I. Did not find this in my research, and then Glenn, uh, Glenn hopped on. Told, told yeah. me to watch it, and I'm, I'm glad it, you did. It recently screened somewhere. Um, I forget where in New York, and that's how I found out about it. I didn't go to the screening, but it it was recently screening as part of like an animation retrospective or something. Oh man, yeah. Come on, Glenn. You gotta. I I want to go to these things. I'm jealous. Uh, there's too many of them. You just got to use your Alamo season pass instead. <laughs> yeah, gotta see. I gotta see Ant Man. Well, speaking of Ant Man, which is a feature film, let's get ready for our feature presentation. <laughs> and now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. I feel like we should leave the big one till the end. Ooh. Hey, everybody, stick around if you want to hear about Nosferatu. I feel like we should talk about Nosferatu last because it is like the biggest movie of this year. Well, uh, another movie that is in a sense, the biggest movie of this year is foolish wives, Hmm. which, uh, was, it seems to have been, and maybe was at least marketed this way as the most expensive movie so far, or, or Mm -hmm. at least the first million dollar picture. Uh, it is by, um, Eric von Stroheim. Eric von Stroheim. Uh, um, which made me think that this was a German movie, and then I realized that it's an American movie. No. Uh, yeah, he was an, an Austrian uh, immigrant. He, he was born in Austria and moved to the United States. Um, an interesting thing was when he immigrated to the U.S., he pretended to be a count, um, Eric von Stroheim is just a guy. Like, he has no royal family history. But he pretended to be when he first moved to the U.S., and that is basically what this movie is about. Is it, is a, it's a con artist movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's about some uh, kind of people who are pretending to be 
Russian royalty, a family of Russian royalty, uh, who are trying to um, get their way into high society in Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo. (laughs) So that they can rip people off and and steal their money. Yeah. Um, Yeah, uh, watching this movie, I'm like, oh, wow, a lot of cool, like, location shooting in Monte Carlo. Great big buildings, like, it's very, very lavish. And then I realized, researching it later, they shot this entirely in California, and they just built Monte Carlo. <laughs> Which is why it was so expensive. Yeah. Like, like, watching this movie, and granted, this movie was originally supposed to be ten hours long, and it, yeah. was, cut, it was cut down to two and well, a half. I don't know, I, I wonder about that, too, of, like, did they shoot... 10 hours of footage and then just cut from that or no. was it actually intended to be 10 hours long? They shot like 300,000 feet of footage or more, uh, which, uh, I think like after, after it was like cut down to like stuff they wanted to use in the movie, it was like 200,000 something. Uh, it like, I don't know exactly how many, um, how many minutes that ends up being, mm. but like he, he intended the movie to be real long and seen over the course of two nights. Uh, okay. It's, uh, and, and they had to like wrestle him ha- out of the editing bay because he <laughs> kept, uh, he, he kept like, like making it longer. Yeah. Uh, Eric von Stroheim, the, like the more that I read about him, the more of a wild guy he seems to be. Oh yeah. <laughs> he seems to be, he's kind of, uh, I feel like he is almost this like, uh, like quintessential, like early Hollywood figure of this, like you know, heavily accented, very demanding, sort of uh, uh, you know, uh, egotistical director who walks around in jodhpurs with a monocle and is like, "We must make the picture longer." <laughs> um, and so um, I don't know. I just think it's interesting that there's there's almost this like cliche like stock character of the like German director making silent movies in Hollywood. That it's like that's just this guy. Yeah, I uh, I saw someone on RogerEbert.com talking about this movie, and uh, he uh, this was written in August 2022, uh, and he compared this director to Kanye. In, in in his egotism, which I don't know exactly when all of this Kanye stuff really took an, an extreme turn for the worse, but uh, uh, it must have been right after that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I don't think I don't think you'd be invoking Kanye uh, in the same way that we have invoked Kanye for the last fifteen years uh, today. Mm. Oh no, yeah, very different. Uh, um. I yeah, mean, I mean, one, this is one of the ways that. Sorry, one, one one of the ways that he is being egotistical is that in this movie they are reading. This movie's called Foolish Wives. It's written and directed and starring Eric von Stroheim, and then someone is picking up and reading a book called Foolish Wives, written by Eric von Stroheim. Yeah, in the movie, that's a ballsy move. Um, it made me think. Oh, did he write a book and then adapted it? And I'm like. That's still a ballsy move to be like, I adapted my own book and the book is in the movie. But the fact that there isn't a real book, that there's just this fictional book within the movie called Foolish Wives that's also called Foolish Wives is somehow even weirder. Than I that. mean, apparently he claimed that it was a real book. He never wrote it. 
but and he, but he put it in the movie and told people that he was adapting it from his own book. This guy is insane. <laughs> I mean, he he kind of was a con artist himself. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of kind of like self reflexive like self mirroring <laughs> going on in this movie. Self reporting, as the kids yeah. say. Um, and it I don't know it's it's a very it is a very kind of like lavish, indulgent movie. Mm. Both the sort of like production of it, the runtime of it, everything about it. it's a movie about you know rich people trying to do rich people stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of very old timey rich person activities, eating caviar, eating which, caviar. Like which he insisted out, was real caviar that he was eating, hanging out at restaurants while shooting birds, um, hanging out in in cool boats, <laughs> uh, drinking ox blood for breakfast. Yeah, I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> I, maybe that was just a, a thing that people did uh, in Monte Carlo. I don't know. Um, I mean, this movie's kind of... Uh, this movie's more of a, like a romp than I expected it to be. I expected this movie to be kind of long and dry, and it's pretty... It seems intentionally kind of silly at times. Like, there's definitely a lot of comedy and like uh, hijinks going on. At times, I mean, I think that this is still a little dry. I, I kind of thought of this as, like, similar, like, subject matter and pacing to an opera, which mm. uh, which also, like, kind of checks out with his whole, like, this needs to be long and you watch it over two nights, like the, the mm-hmm. ring cycle or something like that. Yeah, I mean, this movie is kind of famously, the, even the version of it that we watched is, like, cut down from what, I think even... Not even the ten hour one, but there was like a like a six hour one that he wanted to release that I think did actually get screened at least once or twice. This movie does feel cut down. Like it, it's yeah. long, but there are scenes and this is partially parts of it are missing and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. it, there's there are things that just kinda of come out of nowhere in this movie that seem like very clearly were probably more established in a longer cut. Mm-hmm. I do think it also the just the a lot of things about it feel very indulgent and it like there's plenty of times where it's um it uses like three or four shots of something when i feel like one would do um but uh it is still there's definitely some kind of like visual stuff that is uh i feel like somewhat forward thinking in terms of how it's being presented of just yeah. like visual stuff we haven't really seen a lot of before there's like Right in the first scene, there's a sort of, like, tilt-up POV reveal shot of someone. Hmm. Um, which is, like, a very basic thing, but is still still feels sort of uh, a bit a bit new at this point. Yeah. Uh, another kind of uh, shot that seemed, like, from the future a little bit that I saw was, like, an over-the-shoulder dialogue shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a yeah. two-shot. Um. There's a bunch of those in this movie. Yeah, I think I think that's yeah. It it, you don't see that kind of thing in movies from this time. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen that before. There's um um, there's a scene that's lit with light coming through uh, Venetian blinds, the kind of classic like film noir look of the like slatted light coming through. Yeah, yeah. Um, that looks great. I don't think we've seen that in anything before this. I don't. It's really dramatic lighting. I don't necessarily think that this movie invented it, but I think it's the first time that we've come across it on the show. 
Um, and one other thing that, like, is definitely, like, you know, it's something that someone could have always done, but I, I, mm-hmm. it kind of called out to me was uh, there's one point where uh, one of the husbands of the Foolish Wives is uh, looking at a note that the Count uh, wrote to one of the women and his like his blood is boiling because he knows that the count is trying to like seduce his wife and scam her and he holds the note and then like a superimposed image of the count's face like laughing mm. his like monocled uh <laughs> his monocled yeah. face just like <laughs> like on top of the the money uh, yeah. that that was a, a fun shot as well there is an element to this movie that like the count looks really ridiculous in a way that i think he looked less ridiculous in 1922. I think he's meant to look a little ridiculous, but like, especially now, he looks like, I don't know, like a, like a submarine captain or something. He's got a monocle. He's got this like bright white uniform with medals on it. He's got jodhpurs. He's very like always long carrying cigarette. Yeah, very not a cigarette holder, just a really long cigarette. <laughs> he has a cane. He has a monocle. He just looks like. Uh, kind of like a Looney Tunes villain. I'm sure there's some Looney Tunes where there's an Eric von Stroheim caricature. This movie is basically about the 1920s equivalent of the, like, Nigerian prince email scam of, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, a, a rich, wealthy person. Like, give me a little bit of money so I can, you know, bring my fortune here or whatever. And then, um... And this movie is pretty plotty. I don't think we need to go through all the machinations of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Being a sort of con artist movie, it has a lot of different, he's like this guy, the the count, I forget his whole, he has this insanely long title. Um, I'm just going to call him Eric von Stroheim. Uh, but he's like scamming all these people. His, his big thing is that he like seduces women, right? That's like his, yeah, his (laughs) go-to And he's, uh, he's got yeah. some kind of sitcommy things with like, oh, I gotta please this lady and 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 keep this one from not knowing about the other one. Yeah. yeah. Um, I gotta I gotta trap this lady in a an old creepy house with a witch because that's how you win you win over a, a woman. <laughs> that was a strange um, segment. Yeah, that was a very strange segment. There is a shot in that that I think is really great where he is like creepily holding up a mirror to his face to watch the woman getting undressed behind him. Mm-hmm. And so you can like see her reflected in the mirror at the same time as his face yeah. as he's being a creep, um, which is just a really great shot of like combining all those things within a single frame. Um, and then I, I was sort of wondering like how much is this movie aware of how creepy this is of like, is this being presented as just a normal thing or not? But then the fact that it immediately kind of undercuts that with uh, a, a goat butt kind of like moving in <laughs> into his field of view and he has to like push a goat out of the way. I'm like, all right, he's he's at least somewhat aware, I think, of like the comedy of this movie and the sort of absurdity of a lot of it. Yeah, I would say that it's primarily a drama, but there are comedic moments. Yeah. Um, um, there's a weird recurring gag with uh, the bodyguard who has no arms mm-hmm. and you don't find out until the end that he, cause there there's this repeated thing where like someone will drop something 
and the bodyguard won't pick it up. And it's like, what the hell, man? You're, you're standing right there. And then at the end, you find that he doesn't have any arms. <laughs> I didn't realize that was the same guy every time. I thought it was just like a motif yeah. about ladies dropping their jackets. But um, uh, that, that also, that's good. Fun bit of trivia. The actor who plays that guy is named Harrison Ford. <laughs> wow. Wow. Amazing. Um... But, uh, so there's, there's all this con artist stuff, and then, um, one of the things that does feel very, like, one of the things that feels pretty missing from the movie is that the, the Count is, is killed at the end, but it happens off screen, which is really weird. Yeah. Um, you'd think that they would have at least shot that, you know? Um. Yeah, and it's like, maybe they just cut it out in a way that, I don't know, was really... Not not well done, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, a thing that I read, I don't know if this is actually true, but I hope it is, is that the the scene as written was that he's murdered and then dumped in the, uh, the sewer. And we see that. We see his body dumped into a sewer. But after that, we were supposed to see the body, like, going through the sewers underneath Monte Carlo and getting flushed out into the ocean, where it was then eaten by an octopus. Which, oh my God. again, I don't know how true that is. I don't know if they ever shot that. I don't know how made up any of it is. But I really wish that that was in the movie. Because I want to see it. <laughs> um, a couple like small moments from this movie. The, the kind of main woman that he's trying to scam. Uh, is like mm-hmm. a princess. or No, she's, uh, she's an American. Yeah. Um, she is... Uh, married to, I think, a, like a senator or like some bigwig American politician, and uh, she, she's <laughs> there's a so she, he she's trying to like seduce her and get her in a situation and like get her emotions in a situation where she'll give him lots of money, and uh, so they start hanging out and the the guy she's married to is getting all jealous and she's trying <laughs> to she's trying to navigate that. And she says, well, I'm free, white, and 21. Um, <laughs> I can do what I want. <laughs> and then the guy says, well, I'm married, sunburned, and 41. <laughs> uh, which is a wild exchange for a number of reasons. <laughs> yeah. There is, I think this movie is also like, there's a lot more dialogue than we're used to seeing, even though it's all intertitles. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of talking in this movie. Yeah. There's a lot of talking, and there's also just a lot of, like, very flowery intertitles. Uh, oh, yeah. Very, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, we're we're just trying to set the scene of it being nighttime, and it's talking about, like, the... Oh, my God. <laughs> it's talking about, like, the, the, the nature of, of man or whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, like, it is laughable how sort of, like, flowery the intertitles of this movie are. Like, I think it... This movie takes the cake for, like, most overwritten intertitles <laughs> over whatever. Like, I think Intolerance was probably the winner before. Oh, yeah. Intolerance with its, like, paragraph markers and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Jesus. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but I don't know. There's, I think this movie is sort of uh, the... It's not as self-serious as, like, D.W. Griffith movies are. There's a bit more levity, and it's a bit more... It's just a bit more wild, yeah. I guess, in terms of like 
what is being put on screen and just kind of the overall tone of it. Uh, um, I mean, speaking of, Eric von Stroheim got his start uh, in in a, in a major way by working with T.W. Griffith. Oh, uh, that's uh, true. Yeah, he was in um, one of the movies that we watched, I think, uncredited as like a German soldier. He also, um, yeah, I mean, he played he played a lot of German soldiers in World War One propaganda movies. And uh, yeah, he started off as a stuntman. Like he kind of like worked his way up to director. Um, yeah, but he, uh, I think he was. I read somewhere that he was like assistant assistant directing on Intolerance at a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think again, sort of like unofficially or uncredited. Yeah. But like he, that's actually what he was doing. Yeah, D.W. Griffith would not credit uh, anyone who helped him. Uh, there's there's a kind of uh, fun fight toward the end of this movie where the the husband of the the kind of main woman he's scamming confronts him, and you know he, he finds him in a in a casino. And then he yells at him, "Take off your monocle!" Uh, and then <laughs> and then and then the the husband. Uh, socks him in the face and he goes, go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, Yeah. There is another just bit of random trivia about this movie is there's an episode of the, um, the young Indiana Jones TV show from the nineties where a young Indiana Jones is hired to uh, like wrangle Eric von Stroheim into finishing this movie. Um, Oh, wow. So if you want to see a, a you know a fictional depiction of this movie being made, you can find that episode on YouTube somewhere. That's awesome. I want to watch um, that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I thought this this movie isn't great. Like there's definitely a lot of sort of like arguably pretty misogynistic shit in it. Oh, sure. Um but I don't know. I I had fun with it. It was actually mo- it was more entertaining than I expected it to be. I expected it to be kind of a slog to get through because I knew it was old and indulgent, and I was like, "Oh boy!" And it, it was more fun than I expected. Yeah, I mean, there were fun elements. I thought it, I I didn't think it was bad, but I thought it was like okay. Um, yeah, and uh, it. Uh, I mean, honestly, like the indulgences are so much of like a behind the scenes thing because this movie would not have been the most expensive movie made up to this point if they just shot on location. Right. Uh, Yeah. Like, like you're not, (laughs) the thing is like, you're not really even like seeing the budget so much because the budget is being spent on ridiculous things like Mm -hmm. recreating Monte Carlo in Hollywood and the actors eating real caviar on the, on set. And I think even, like, the costumes, like, he required that, like, people, you know, all, like, the rich people wore actual, like, silk underwear or whatever. And it's just, like, you're never going to, you know. <laughs> and that's always a question with filmmaking of, like, is it worth spending money on all this stuff that isn't going to show up on screen but might sort of, like, affect the atmosphere of it? Yeah. You know? Um, uh, he, I mean, he wanted the the um, the... Monaco money to be so realistic that he used real like counterfeiting practices to yeah. uh, to make the money and then got like briefly arrested during the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there there is a lot of uh, fun behind the scenes stuff about this movie too, just like how absurdly kind of lavish the production was. <laughs> learning learning from his uh, from his uh, right, yeah, his former boss, yeah. Yeah. I was, the the word I was searching for is something other than senpai, but I didn't want to say senpai. 
Uh, All right, let's move on. (laughs) Let's move on to, I guess, another movie that is probably more interesting for the technology behind it Mm -hmm. than the movie itself. Yeah. Um, Which is The Toll of the Sea, which is the first, like genuinely the first Technicolor film. Uh, Feature film. It's the second. Feature film. Uh, Is it? There was one previous that did not get a wide release, and it was shot in a way that um, was not able to be played on most projectors. Oh, right. Yeah. But there was, that, there was another feature film that is now lost that, that yeah. was a previous Technicolor feature. And that was Technicolor, but it wasn't the same process as this. That right. was, yeah. Um, so no, you're right. I, I was gonna give this, uh, an, an honorific that you're right. It doesn't actually deserve. <laughs> it is the first starring role for anime Wong, who we yeah, are now touching true. on for the first time. Yeah. Um, a big silent movie star. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Huge silent movie star. Um, and I haven't seen any of her movies up until this one. So, um, but this movie is directed by Chester M. Franklin and it is a kind of loose adaptation of Madame Butterfly, but kind mm-hmm. of set in, in, uh, China in the 1920s instead of Japan in whenever Madame Butterfly is set. Mm-hmm. Um, not the best movie, and I feel like yeah. it even, it, even when it came out, I think it existed kind of more just to kind of show off the technology than necessarily to like, I feel like it's, it's story stuff is very, it feels very, uh, I don't know, old, old fashioned even for this time. Right. And, and like, I think people at the time, I think people like, you know, enjoyed it well enough at the time, but I think it was seen as a gimmick for sure. Mm-hmm. I, like yeah. I, I was reading that they kind of had hard, I had a hard time scoring big actors to get mm. on this thing because it's just like Technicolor is making this movie that's in color crazy, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, part of the reason they picked the setting uh, uh, and, and the story itself was to like justify the, the technology. Mm-hmm. This movie yeah. is like technology it's 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 very Cameron. It's uh yeah. technology first, story second. Uh I know you were just we were just talking about Avatar, but uh I don't know. The, I'm hot take, I think Avatar is better than this movie. I would agree. <laughs> and I think it integrates uh uh storytelling into the technological stuff better. But um this movie is pretty significant for its use of technicolor film. Um yeah. it is it's the, so it's the first Two color subtractive Technicolor film. Mm-hmm. Uh, which yeah, it's nitty gritty, but it's like like among the different types of like film, like color film processes that have been happening around now. Yeah, uh, and this is one as I was talking about earlier that can be played on a regular projector instead of having to have like mm-hmm. a, a weird two projector setup and change the alignment and everything like that. Yeah, it doesn't need a sort of weird color wheel sort of thing that's part of the projector. It's like, you can just project it like a normal film. But the, the process of shooting it is really weird. Yeah. Um, I, I have a book called The Dawn of Technicolor. Uh, it's, all, it's a huge book all about Technicolor. And uh, I can read a quote from someone working on the film about, uh, you know, they had to, they were shooting two two strips at the same time. So they needed an extreme amount of light 
and they needed to move the, the film really fast through the camera. And uh, well, it the, was it was being shot on a single strip of film, but it was it was uh, like getting because of a prism in the camera, it was getting two frames. Yes, being exposed at the uh, same time. Yeah. Uh, it needed uh, for for people that know photography and filmmaking. It needed twelve hundred foot candles for the interiors. So a lot of this movie, like it's a little blown out in a way, and mm-hmm. like there, the, there was no way around that because the, to get all the light that they needed, they need to just dump yeah. light onto all their. I mean, subjects. It's, it's almost all exteriors, also. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the camera operator uh, said, "Quote." It was about three times as difficult to crank this big camera. If you had a long scene, your arm was so tired that many times to keep a constant speed, I'd have my assistant help me take hold of my hand and push it to keep the speed. By the end of the day, your arm was ready to fall off. It was just awful. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like a big consideration in like movies being made at this time that you had to keep a consistent speed one while hand cranking a camera. And also, it's like, yeah, you get tired cranking a big camera all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, there's, there, I mean, there's some interesting things about this movie. I think one of the big ones is, uh, unlike a lot of other movies from this time period, it is ac- they actually do cast um, Chinese or Chinese-American actors, unlike yeah. some other films that we've watched. Yeah, Dragon Ball um, Evolution. <laughs> Exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, there's, it's definitely like, there's a lot of like broken English in the intertitles, which is not the best. Yeah. Um, One thing that I did kind of like, um, that I guess was done in, uh, in Foolish Wives as well, is uh, when people were speaking in another language, it initially showed that language on the intertitle and then faded to the English translation. Mm. Speaking of Avatar... Oh, do they do that in Avatar? They too? do. They do that in Avatar too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a couple of interesting inter- intertitle things. Uh, like they they kind of play with font choices, font whatever typeface. Mm-hmm. Um, Destiny did that also. In, like each of its sort of sub stories, the intertitles were in different typeface depending on where in the world it was taking place. Yeah, yeah. And so this, I think, when characters are supposed to be speaking Chinese, there is a sort of like. The the a chop English font, yeah. There's sort of a a a, a slightly uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it's 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 English, but it's in a sort of the typeface is meant to look like characters more. Um, uh, there was a funny thing where in like the first scene, someone uh, one of the Chinese characters says the word "wince," and I'm like, no one, no Chinese person has ever said "wince." Oh, Wentz. W-H-E-N-C-E. Indeed. Um, and yeah, this movie's just very sort of tragic and uh, melodramatic. I mean, it's... it's Yeah. It's intentionally it's, it's very... It's schmaltzy. It's like... It's like yeah. yeah, it's... Um, I, there's a... The magazine Film Daily uh, uh, summed up the story as... Chinese girl, deserted by her American, gives their child to his wife and throws herself in the sea. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's uh, the gist of it. 
I will say that like uh, like anime one like elevates this movie. Uh, she I, is very good. Like um, right at the bat, I, it's like because I think there is you definitely have, I think have to uh, sort of in in terms of trying to uh, I guess judge silent film performances like they're very different from acting now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's definitely times, and this is an example of it, where it's like, I can tell that she's very good at this specific thing. Yeah. Of, like, not being too big um, and just being able to sort of, like, hold attention, but also just do a, do a lot with very little in terms of her physicality and facial expression. That's like, you get everything that you're supposed to get out of the performance without any audio. It's more of a subtle performance than a lot of stuff like around her and in a lot of mm-hmm. other movies at this time. Um, yeah, but yeah, the story's like fine. Yeah. Um, I will say that like because of her acting, though, I was like getting a little emotionally involved when she was giving yeah. her kid. You know? Oh yeah, great in that scene. Um, um I mean, so uh, the the Chinese the Chinese setting was getting back to the technology for a second. The Chinese setting was picked because this is this two strip Technicolor, mm-hmm. it, you know, normally to represent the full spectrum of color that's visible to the human eye, we need red, green, and blue, uh, and this is just red and green Technicolor. Uh, so it, it gets across, you know realistic color fairly well although it's this kind of like hyper real like strange mm-hmm. look to it um yeah they picked china because they thought that like chinese clothes and and imagery would work well with those two colors red and green a lot of people are wearing um like green chipaos and uh and there's like red roses and a lot of it's outside in like nature or whatever but it is called the toll of the sea and the ocean is green in this movie yeah uh, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, so is the sky, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it's sort of a sea foam green. That was sort of a, you know, kind of... It kind of works. It kind of works. Yeah. It's, like, it's like strange, but you get used to it. Yeah. It is kind of more teal magenta than, like, green red. Because, um, like, everyone's skin tone is sort of a, a, some variation on red. Yeah. Um, I think the reason why red and green were initially chosen for two-strip technicolor was because they figured red works for most skin tones... And then green works for most sort of like foliage and like natural uh, sort right. of environments. Um, and yeah, it is weird looking, but it it's it looks surprisingly good, I think. Yeah. For how primitive it kind of is in terms of like film, color film. This was, um, uh, but you know, because the process of making these prints was so expensive. It cost about eight times as much to get a print for Toll of the Sea as, yeah. as another one. Um, a kind of interesting uh, factoid about this movie um, is the the original ending was lost um, at some point. Like, there are no copies of it left. Um, and so when this movie was getting uh, restored in the 80s, um, they got an original uh, two-strip Technicolor camera and shot... Uh, new footage of crashing waves and a setting sun, which is what is at the end of the movie now. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what's funny? You can tell. Like, you can tell. Yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell from... Uh, you could tell just from the frame, like, the placement of the camera that it's that it's new. 
with the- it also, I, yeah, it's like it's the footage definitely looks a little bit higher fidelity, kind of. It isn't as like mm-hmm. crunchy, contrasty. It's not as scratched up. It's not as grainy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's interesting. And um, they're they don't use this a lot, uh, and the, but they utilize this in the intertitles that are kind of bridging the gap between the old and new footage. But uh, painted intertitles, which we see, but these ones are mm. in color. Uh, you yeah. know, like utilizing a lot of reds and greens in the paintings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's all right. It's a yeah. technical thing. But, it, uh, is, it is kind of more interesting for its like technological stuff and just the fact that it's anime Wong's first film. Like the actual, right. Like much like, like the sound stuff. It's like taken on its own merits. It's like, eh, uh, Nanook next? Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, otherizing movies made about <laughs> Asian people in some respect, uh, <laughs> we've got Nanook of the North. Yeah, very famous movie. The second most famous movie of this year, I would yeah. say. Uh, um, and if it weren't for SpongeBob, maybe the most famous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is, this is often credited as the first, uh, feature documentary, um, which I guess it kind of is. I mean, how you define documentary is arguable, you know? Yeah. Um, but I do think this movie, uh, distinguishes itself from like actuality films that existed right away, like. Of just footage of things happening. I feel like right. this is a movie that is like trying to build a, a real narrative out of mostly staged scenes. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe like, trying a little hard, too hard to build a narrative. Maybe trying a little too hard to, to build a narrative, but it is, you know, it's it, the attempt of sort of taking footage of real pe- people in places and creating a narrative out of that into a film, I yeah. think is part of what I consider a documentary. So. The way that I sure. characterize uh, Robert Flaherty's, uh, who's the director, uh, Robert Flaherty's approach to documentary um, mm-hmm. is almost like a Disneyland version of of a certain culture, uh, an right. Epcot yeah. version. You know, it's trying to take like large elements. It's trying to take like a huge culture and like typify it and distill it mm-hmm. down to these like these like iconic things in igloo yeah. hunting for a walrus you know yeah um uh he, he has another movie called man from iran uh not iran but uh a-r-a-n which is a hmm. island off of um off of uh, ireland i believe um where there's some sort of like semi-primitive people who live there um and he has like a similar approach where he's just like what are the things that you do now we're going to make, like, have you do all of those things for the camera, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, this movie is about uh, primarily a single uh, person living in uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, or sort of an uh, uh, Inuit community in Canada. Upper, upper Canada. Um, yeah. Um, and the sort of main central figure of this movie is, uh, well, in the movie, is a hunter named Nanook, 
He was not actually named Anuk. Yeah. His real name um, is Alakarialuk. Yes. Thank you for saying that so I don't have to try to butcher it. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, the general depiction of uh, Inuit life and culture is pretty misrepresented. Like, he's definitely trying to show off sort of like how primitive they are, which right. in most cases just wasn't true. In like 1922, they like had guns and like modern technology they knew what movie w- movies were. They, they were just people. Photographs were, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a yeah, scene. Are- there's a scene with Nanook like seeing a photograph for the first time and like biting the the disc because he thinks it's yeah. like a, a food or something. Yeah, and like being astonished by it. It's like he knew what photographs were. Um, yeah, there's a lot of talk about like the simple Eskimo, and it's like I don't know if this is you know. The best. I mean, I don't know if this is co- I don't know if it's coming from the best place. I guess I feel like Robert Flaherty is overemphasizing the sort of like seemingly primitive nature of uh, of this like community, and it's like most of it isn't true. I mean, I think it's I think it's well intentioned, right? Like he lived in this area for a while. Uh, the people who and you know he did abandon some of these people when he moved on to film other things. <laughs> but like, like the people who are Nanook's wives in the movie were Flaherty's wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he had wives and chil- wives and children in this community. And like, he respected them a lot, but he still otherized them mm-hmm. and he yeah. still was making them consumable for a white audience. Yeah. Um, uh, I wa- there's a documentary about Nanook of the North, or not even about, but just kind of involving, uh, called Nanook Revisited, which was filmed mm-hmm. in the 80s, uh, in the same in the same area where Nanook was filmed. So Nanook Revisited is doing what Nanook of the North uh, was kind of intent- intending to do, which mm-hmm. is show these people in their like actual surroundings and treating them with respect, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's showing like daily life in the eighties in this part yeah. of of the the country of Canada, and it is also um, asking people their thoughts on Nanook. And some people who uh, were children at the time that it was being filmed are like relaying anecdotes about Flaherty mm-hmm. and uh, and the filming of the movie. Um, one of them, uh, I think this like this gets at Flaherty's intentions a lot. Uh, one of the people who, uh, one of the people who knew Flaherty when he was a kid, uh, and is now an old man, uh, kind of paraphrases him, and he says, and he, so he said that Flaherty was saying, "I'm not trying to shoot a film on what the whites made of these people. I'm not interested in the decay of these people. I wanted to show their primitive majesty and their originality as long as it is still possible before the whites." destroy not only their character but these people themselves mm. right he he the the movie dynamic of the north i think sets out to show inuit culture like pre-colonization mm-hmm. even though which that is why kind it's of a fiction of, already right um but i also like the movie doesn't frame it that way right the movie yeah. never says that and i think that's where it sort of 
it's like dishonest in a way goes wrong yeah is that it it is right the dishonesty of it um but yeah i mean that's a a I guess the the intention is is there for something positive, even if it doesn't really. I don't really think it achieves that. But. It's a it's a fun movie. Um, it's an it's an interesting movie. Uh, mm-hmm. You're. It's not like you're not learning stuff, but you have to take everything that you're seeing with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and yeah, it's like a, a lot of. I think the the kind of misrepresentation. I have more of a. That like bothers me more, I guess, than this movie also gets sort of dragged a lot for how much of it is just staged, which is like, well, that's whatever. Like, they never shot inside it an igloo because it was too dark and the camera was too big. So there's these sort of stage scenes where they like built a half wall of an igloo to make it look like they're inside one. It's like, I'm fine with that. I don't care, you know? There's a part um, where they're like hunting for a seal and he didn't want to wait around for a seal to show up. So they yeah. just like had had a seal. <laughs> they 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 had someone pulling a rope from the other side of a hole in the ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh yeah, there's a walrus hunt, which uh walrus is referred to as the tiger of the north, which is pretty great. <laughs> and, and, um, and and he sounds his battle cry, uck uck. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, there's like, there's a bunch of cute husky puppies in this movie, which anytime cute dogs are in movies, I'm a sucker for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, this movie is very interesting, even if it's not necessarily good, question mark. I would say maybe it's not morally good, but I enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy watching it. I oh yeah, I mean... Movie. I'd seen this before. I enjoyed rewatching it because it it is like like I think some of the, like the actuality films that we watched early on. Like it, it's kind of it's cool just to see really old footage of people in places. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, this was this might have been the first movie silent film that I saw with a live uh, a live score. I guess I I'm realizing that hmm. I saw like a Chaplin when I was a kid with a live score, but. As an adult, I saw mm-hmm. this in in Edinburgh with a live oh. score. Um, Fancy that. Because when I go to a new city, I, I make a beeline for their indie theaters. <laughs> uh, and I felt really bad because I had seen this already, and uh, I was jet-lagged, and so I fell asleep for parts mm. of the movie, yeah. which seems disrespectful when people are playing live music. But mm. I did my best. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, I of the North. Pretty... Pretty, I mean, a pretty landmark movie in terms of yeah. its its approach to like filmmaking and trying to use real life subjects and kind of portray those on film in a way that isn't flatly scripted fictional narrative stuff. Yeah, and if we're talking about like famous silent films, this is definitely in the top ten. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of Nanook, uh, was it Nanook revisited? I believe so. Yes. Uh, there is one of my favorite episodes of documentary now is a parody of specifically that eighties documentary. And I think it's called Canuck uncovered. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's very good. (laughs) It's, uh, I like, I like how his name is Canuck. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and in, yeah, in that documentary now it's like his, it's actually, he has a different name. (laughs) 
Uh, it's yeah. like they, they 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 take the thing of misrepresenting people really far, and yeah. sort of things being staged. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting that that documentary now episode is almost like this like reclaiming of power for these like uh, people who are being misrepresented in the movie uh, because mm-hmm. it it ends up with Canuck like becoming this like tyrant director <laughs> of, of the movie itself. <laughs> And, and like inventing a bunch of cinematic techniques and things like that. Yeah. Anyone else. Yeah. Um, all right. I guess we've made it to our last two films. Another film that is, I guess, somewhat blurring the line between documentary and sort of fictional narrative film. Good segue. Is Haxen. Yeah. Or, or, or I maybe guess. In Swedish, like Hexen. Maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure what the umlaut, uh, really, what, how to properly pronounce the accent. It means witch. A hexer. One who hexes you. (laughs) Mm. Um, And this is a a Scandinavian film, I believe it was. uh, I think it's Swedish. Swedish film, but by a Danish director. Hmm. Benjamin Christensen. This is a weird movie. Yes. Just it's, in terms it's of very strange. Its, its structure and like what it's even, how it's like using filmmaking in terms of trying to tell a story because mm-hmm. it's like, it's on one hand, it, it feels almost sort of like an academic presentation. Yeah. The first, and the first reel of this movie is just straight up a PowerPoint. Yeah. Of like old woodcut illustrations and intertitles just kind of explaining some of the history of folklore and witchcraft in the Middle Ages and, like, where it comes from and all that stuff. Um, and then it gets into sort of, you know, filmed, scripted, like, recreations, I guess, of different points in history to kind of try to tell a story of witchcraft and sort of how it was seen in different points in history. Um, and then at the end, it's sort of recreating more contemporary stuff in, a, in an attempt to sort of show what the, I guess, a contemporary understanding of the things that would, uh, was blamed on witchcraft in the Middle Ages. Um, it's super ambitious. It's su- it doesn't really feel like anything else we've watched because of its Sort of, like structurally, yeah, it's like weird mix of yeah, like academic presentation and like straight up like bug nuts horror movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like it's the same time. It's like yeah, it's trying to be like educational and academic, but also like lurid and and like yeah. extreme. <laughs> yeah, um, it is yeah one of the more like lurid almost kind of like nasty movies we've watched just in terms of like the stuff that it's showing on screen yeah um uh one thing about this movie that i think we both did not like is the the score that exists for it yeah yeah which it is mostly like classical pieces um like classical music like pre-existing classical music um but uh it's supposedly it's what was originally played live for this movie. Oh, really? Or it's, it's the closest thing to what the, cause the original like score for it is lost, but then there was a later premiere 
that had this score on it, um, or this score was played over it. Um, so it's like the closest assumed thing to the original score, but I didn't much care for it. It was felt way too whimsical and lighthearted for get a the, spooky synthesizer guy to write a score yeah. for this. Um, this movie is very spooky, and the score doesn't really support that. Um, a lot of wild images in this movie. Yeah. Um, this movie I have actually I've been waiting since before we started the show to watch. It's been a movie I've been wanting to watch for a long time. And How'd I, you like when it? we start when we started the show, I was like, I should just wait until we get to it. Um, it lived up. I think it was possibly an even weird an even weirder movie than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, and I think the the sort of craziness of the imagery lived up to the hype for sure. There's stuff in this that like made me gasp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, people, I mean, I mean, it would make you gasp to see people dancing on a crucifix, uh, disrespect that, and spitting that, on it. Disrespect. That less so. Um, uh, kissing the devil's bottom. <laughs> that didn't make me gasp, but I was like, I, that's not something I've seen in film up to this point. Um, it, it has a bit of a Melies sensibility to it because I think that even this like yeah. horrific stuff is playful. Um, yes. Yeah. For like, sure. like the, the, the tone going on in this movie is kind of, like, wild because, like we're saying, it's, like, this mix of academic and, like, lurid imagery demonstrating what witch, witches Black Sabbaths were like or whatever. Well, um, to demonstrate what the perception of witches Black Sabbaths were like in the Middle right. Ages, right? It's, like, a lot, of the, a lot of the images that are shot later on are recreations of, like, the woodcut... Uh, illustrations from mm-hmm. the first reel. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're sort of like based on contemporary, like Christian understandings of witchcraft and like that sort of thing. So they're all these like very extreme, you know, like, you know, dancing in the forest with demons and kissing Satan's butt <laughs> and eating babies and ghost horses. Um, that stuff's cool yeah. to see though. Like it is. It, um, yeah, I, I, but, like, the thing is, like, while the, the movie, through, like, its structure and through its intertitles, uh, is not presenting these things as something that you are, like, putting yourself into, like, like mm-hmm. the story of a, of a narrative film. It's yeah. something that you're kind of, like, pulled back observing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It, 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 and, it, and it calls attention to this in a number of ways, where through the intertitles, it's always going, like, we live in a civilized age where we don't believe in things like the devil and hell and uh, witches. Uh, we have science and we're smart and enlightened or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, which is really interesting. Like this movie is almost mm-hmm. like presenting itself as like post-religious, uh, which I don't really know yeah. like what the situation was in Scandinavia at the time. But I would think that there was still like a pretty, you know, sizable contingent of religious people. Uh, yeah. but maybe they don't want to watch this movie because it's uh, too demonic. Yeah. Um, which I think it, that was sort of a response to it when it came out. It was like, this movie is demonic and evil and people shouldn't be allowed to watch it. <laughs> um, the intertitles in this feel more like they're almost like directly addressing the audience in a way that most intertitles aren't. They're sort of very yeah. kind of like third person narration. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is sort of like, 
Yeah, it's like I am making a presentation to you, the audience. Yes, and, yeah. Uh, but like another another way that it is, it's kind of calling attention to the artifice of what it's putting in front of you is there's a scene where um, the intertitles say like one of my actresses wanted to try one of these torture devices. You know, yeah. uh, it's like saying like I here is somebody who is playing a character in the movie being herself on mm-hmm. on screen. Yeah. Oh, the, the torture devices. We'll get into that in a second. But, um, yeah, I think this movie is more about, like, persecution than I expected it to be. I expected it to be a pretty sort of, like, it's just sort of a bunch of scenes of witchcraft through different time periods. And it is very much, the sort of main thread, or sort of, like, thesis of it is how witchcraft was used as a sort of scapegoat and a, uh, a way to, like by the, the sort of people in power in the Middle Ages to, to persecute people. Not just that, but, like, it is saying that we still do this just under a yeah. different name, which yeah. I think is a, a wild. It's, like, a really, yeah. like, uh, it's a really woke movie, you know? Like, yeah. it, it, like... Um, the Republicans would hate this film. Yeah. It's basically saying, like, it's drawing this direct comparison between the way that we treated witches back in the day uh, and the way that we treat women now. Mm-hmm. Now being 1922. Yeah, but, like, still, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. Like, Well, yeah, because it, it brings up the idea of uh, the, like, medical diagnosis of hysteria. Mm-hmm. Which I'm not... I mean, that was before the 20s, but I think it might have still been in practice in the 20s of, like, you know, a woman doing something that her husband doesn't like, and it's like, oh, she's hysterical. Give her, you know, cocaine pills or whatever. Um, uh, and yeah, it's sort of like is is comparing sort of like medieval dungeons to contemporary like uh, like asylums and that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's basically saying like we're no better now. Like it's mm-hmm. saying like like we've got like a nice coat of paint on it, but we still mm-hmm. treat mentally ill people in like an inhuman way, like like we did back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's also saying that, like, you know, women back then and now uh, face uh, issues for being too ugly or too pretty, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I, I mean, I think I really like what this movie has to say. Me too. I, I did not really expect that from it. Or it's sort of, it's, it, yeah, it's sort of big, uh, like the points it's trying to make, I thought were really feel very progressive for the time, I think. Um, and I don't know, it just, it gets into so much more kind of like nuance than I'm used to seeing from movies in this time period too. Like, like, uh, you know, just the idea that like people who are, uh, accused and executed for being witches, it like, you could be an old woman and be accused of being a witch. You could be a young woman and be accused of being a witch. You could be a man and be accused of being a witch. It was like not, there were no consistent rules because it was just being used as a form of like uh, oppression against people. Yeah, which is a um, lot, a lot for a movie to say when it has a lot of shots of of the devil going like yeah. <laughs> the devil, who is played by the director Benjamin Christensen, <laughs> in in really incredible uh, makeup. I think, like, I really like how. I like his performance as the devil. It's very silly and over the top. Yeah. Um, but like 
There's there's the one like very famous shot of this movie of him sort of like popping up from behind a book and like reaching his his clawed hands over it. And it's really an effectively very spooky looking shot. Mostly due to the lighting. But mm-hmm. this movie looks amazing also. Like the lighting of it, it's like it's much more shadowy than a lot of movies. I think it uses close-ups really well. There's a lot of really great close-ups of people acting and reacting to things that are yeah. like really powerful in certain places. Um, yeah. There's a part where uh, an old woman is just kind of randomly accused of being a witch and it follows like her getting, you know, arrested and tortured and everything like mm-hmm. this. Uh, Maria, the weaver. Um, and there, there are these scenes that are like close-ups on her face where, like, mm. you really feel for her, you know? I think I think the woman playing her does an amazing job because, like, like she is being tortured and you, like, see that in her face. Yeah. It is, it's, like, kind of, it's, like, upsetting. Yeah. Um, yeah, the way this movie uses close-ups of people's faces is, it's not a new thing. Like, we've seen close-ups before, but, like, just the way it's used in this movie really struck me. And I, it feels... It feels very modern in in certain uh, in certain places because of that because of just the way that it it really holds on people's faces very close up. Um, Often in anguish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of anguish in this movie. Um, yeah, there's going back to the you mentioned how there's like there's this kind of brief interlude just about like medieval torture devices, Sick. and it sort of. And it's sort of academically just like showing them to you, but in such a way that makes each one like the power of suggestion in all of these is incredible because they're just very plainly like, here's a close up shot of like thumb screws or some weird, like there's like a block that they strap your hand to. And then it's just like, they just bring a hammer into the frame and your mind does the rest of like, <laughs> the, the 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 amount way they can just show very plainly like the implications of each of these torture devices without actually showing them a practice at all i thought was really effective hmm. like every single time they showed one i'm just like i started wincing i'm just like this looks terrible because like it's just your mind doing the rest like once you see how it works then your imagination goes off and you're like oh my god that is horrifying um, this is a very dark movie. Um, like, there's a lot of stuff in it where I was surprised at how dark it went. Um, and, yeah, like, the, uh, for all of its depictions of, like, these, you know, horned demons and, like, giving birth to de- demon babies and things. That was cool. <laughs> very cool. Um, I think it really sort of, uh, it really presents the idea that like it's the primarily like the men in power who are, who are the real devils. Um, <laughs> and it has a, a lot of sympathy for persecuted people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, and it has sympathy for, you know, people who are the victims of, of sexism. It has per- sympathy for, um, mentally ill people. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. Um, there's a bit where there's the, the judges of the, uh, Spanish Inquisition. There are these, you know, medieval judges going around 
accusing people of witchcraft. Um, and it, there's an intro title that says something along the lines of the witch plague ravages wherever the judges go. Being like, wherever these guys show up, they find witchcraft somewhere because, you know, they're just accusing people left and right. Um, yeah, there's, um, I mean, think of what else, my other, like, big takes on it. Um, I mean, I, I, I would say also that I have, and this movie kind of invites it because it tells you about the artifice of what's happening. But I have mm-hmm. like I have questions about how, um, I don't know, sound a lot of the things that it's saying are. Mm. Uh, you know, it it's not, it's it's like Nanook. It is like taking these kind of bigger concepts and like making them, like condensing them into like mm-hmm. a story that is like yeah. typical but not precise right yeah but like it's it's more it's i think it's it's more leaning into the fact that it's creating a narrative whole cloth than right does but also i wonder like like it knows like it it makes the viewer aware that it's creating a narrative but it says that it's doing it in the service of like education or something like that Mm -hmm. and i think that like all of the like a lurid stuff and like extreme stuff in this movie makes me like doubt its intentions a little bit. Mm-hmm. It makes me think that like maybe sometimes it's going to pick something that's like a little less historically accurate. Uh, like maybe like, like for example, like they don't have an iron maiden in the movie, but like the iron maiden was like not used as a torture device. Right. right? Yeah. Like, and like, but like, it seems like it's the kind of thing that it would just leave in because it's cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it, you know, I think the stuff that's valid about the movie are, it's like, um, I don't know, philosophical, uh, things that it's saying and the, um, and just like the kind of appeal of the imagery on screen. Mm -hmm. But I have like doubts about like the soundness of its like academic aspect. Yeah. I mean, I think especially when it gets towards the end and it's talking about this rules like, more contemporary stuff that to me, I was like, Oh, well this, this feels somehow, even though it's talking about newer things, it feels more old fashioned. Um, because it's sort of like, it's coming at it from a place of a 1922 understanding of mental health, mm-hmm. which is obviously oh, it's developed since then. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of things where it doesn't really have, I think even the kind of, uh, as clear of vocabulary as we do now talk about it's also just like hard to find good information about witches i've been Mm. to like a couple of witchcraft museums but they're usually run by witches uh Mm. so uh i I, their their perspective is um i don't know it's it's historical but it's also like theological um Mm -hmm. and uh i don't know like where one like it's hard to know where one ends and where the other begins and so it's hard to know right. what to trust in a witchcraft museum uh yeah and there's just like a lot of like loose information floating around about a lot of that kind of stuff mm. yeah i feel like so much of the sort of general understanding of like of witches comes from like christian propaganda of, of like basically just being used as a tool to oppress people 
Yeah. And then on the on the other hand, it's like then there's almost like a counterbalance of people who are actually practicing the like spiritual practices of Wicca or um, like actual witchcraft stuff is like we want to counteract all of the bad press, and so then it's like yeah, trying to find a, a just a, a a pretty clear unfiltered uh, information about it is can be tough. Yeah. Uh, speaking of spooky Halloween monsters. <laughs> yeah. So at a certain point during Hexen, I was like, is this the best movie we've watched for this show? Just because of like, <laughs> on a technical perspective, it's really incredible. It is sort of like, it's just presenting a lot of really interesting ideas. And it's like narratively, like structurally, it's super interesting. And then I watched Nosferatu and I was like, no, this is the best movie we've watched for this show. Oh, <laughs> Um, hot take. This movie rules. It's real good. It's a great yeah. movie. Uh, Nosferatu, directed by Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau. Um, AKA FW Murnau. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's easily one of the most famous movies we've watched so far. Mm-hmm. I'd seen it, uh, I, I think I had actually only seen it once before. Um, although the first time I saw this movie was at, uh, the Bardavan Theater in Poughkeepsie, which is an old, old theater with a, uh, an organ in it. And so I saw this movie with a proper live organ score Oof. in a theater. Oof. It was, I think it might've been on Halloween also. It was oh. perfect. It was, you could, <laughs> I, I could not have seen this movie under better circumstances. Um, but I hadn't seen it since I saw that probably when I was, I don't know, like 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and hadn't seen it in full since then. And so I was, I was still surprised by a lot of it because I didn't remember big chunks of it. This movie is a, a definite banger. And like, yeah. it, it, this movie rips. <laughs> it like, it like flows really well from point to point. Like it, mm-hmm. it, uh, like it doesn't drag really. Like yeah. it, um, uh, it the 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 spooky guys real spooky you know um there's a lot of tension in the movie there's a lot of like really iconic imagery in the movie uh it's it's just fun it's fun and spooky it's a great halloween time yeah one of my notes on it was uh i do feel like a lot of 1910s films feel kind of slapdash in their writing in terms of like the narrative structure of them in terms of like Mm -hmm. the pacing all that kind of stuff and maybe it's because this is based on a book, but I feel like it the the narrative of it holds together really well in a way that feels distinct. Like, this movie tells a story better than most movies that we've watched up till this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially, like, it's doing, like, um, at the beginning of the movie, I think it does this really, like, good trick of... Uh, the the main character Hutter is a, a real kind of happy go lucky dimwit, and <laughs> uh, and like the beginning of the movie uh, is drawing a contrast be- between the like that and the horrors that come later by like mm-hmm. really like indulging in him just like frolicking in the woods or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and. But like while he's frolicking, it's like talking about vampires enough that like there's a, yeah. there's like a sense of dread. Yeah, but, there's an ominousness hanging over it. Yeah. Um. Uh. So, and so yeah, it's it's really good, really good yeah. contrast. Um. 
before we get into like the meat of it, I feel like uh, let's talk about a little bit of kind of the backstory, I guess, of this movie. Um, it was produced by a production company called Prana Films in Germany. They made one movie, this one. Um, and the, I think one of the main reasons for that was because this movie is uh, an, an adaptation of the novel Dracula with all the names changed. <laughs> Dra- Dracula was never copywritten in the UK, so it was public domain, or at least their argument was it was public domain when they made this movie. Uh, but uh, when it came out, um, Bram Stoker's widow, Florence, uh, sued Prana Films because she said that they had stolen the intellectual property or whatever, um, and effectively put them out of business. And then, because of the lawsuit, uh, one of the sort of results of the lawsuit was that the film had to be destroyed. All copies of it had to be destroyed, which thankfully didn't happen because enough copies existed by that point that people were just like, nope, we're keeping this. Yeah. Um, but so this is, um, I think you can't really say that this is either the first vampire movie or the first Dracula movie because there was a lost film from 1921 uh, from Hungary called The Death of Dracula that is not really an adaptation of Dracula as far as I can tell having not seen it um, because it doesn't exist anymore but um, it's kind of arguable whether or not that movie is either a Dracula movie or really a vampire movie we've definitely seen vampires before like proper vampires like this I mean we've seen you know sexy ladies in like bat costumes (laughs) we've also seen Spooky guys turn into bats. True. Yeah. Melies uh, had a lot of <laughs> a lot of spooky imagery he can kind of, you know, lay claim to. Yeah. Um but in terms of all of the the sort of uh conventions of a vampire movie, this mm-hmm. basically hits every single one of them. Yeah. Definitely. Um and yeah, it's been a while since I've seen the Coppola uh, Dracula movie, so I don't I'm mm-hmm. not like uh, I don't know exactly, and I haven't read the book, so I don't I don't know exactly how well this follows the story. But you know, it is very much a guy goes into a vampire castle, gets spooked out, and then gets bit kind of kind mm-hmm. of situation. Yeah, I I also have not read the book Dracula by Bram Stoker, but I I have seen the Coppola movie, which is I think or at least sort of markets itself as the closest adaptation of it. Um, and this I feel like this follows the book pretty closely up until the end, at least. Hmm. Um, I mean, the idea of like a real estate guy who get who goes to Transylvania to meet an old count and gets trapped in his castle, and then the count comes to, you know, his home country, uh, England in the novel, Germany in this, and sort of sets up shop in a new place, and then uh, kind of seduces his wife. Um, Your wife has then, a lovely neck. Yeah. Uh, and then gets killed at the end. Like, that is... The broad strokes are exactly the same as Dracula, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of... The, the details of a lot of it are changed. Um, This movie I, I saw... This is like a properly spooky movie. Um, yeah. And uh, I saw this a few months ago with a live score, uh, and I was so furious with it because oh yeah uh, you told me this story but tell it for the show they 
so they were playing it around Halloween, and they just like completely disrespected this movie. Uh, and I talked to them afterwards, and they said that they thought that it was campy, basically, uh, or like corny or whatever. And so they would, in the soundtrack, add in a, a lot of like goofy sound effects. Um, like there slide are points, whistles and stuff. Yeah, I think even a slide <laughs> whistle at a point. It was like, uh, it, it was so weird. Like there was parts of the music that were genuinely spooky, but they would undercut it. They they wouldn't allow the audience to take it seriously. Mm. So people were laughing the entire time. Um, so there were points where there are like effect shots where they use like they they undercrank the camera so that the mm-hmm. uh, uh, Nosferatu's carriage like moves in a kind of strange fast motion, uh, which is supposed to be spooky, and mm-hmm. they just like play a doop 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 doop. You know, it was yeah. Uh, it it goes to show that like these movies, you can like use them as a canvas in a lot of ways, um, mm. and I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing to do something counter to the movie, uh, with your, with that canvas. Um, you know, I, I could see like a, a, a critical score being applied to birth of a nation, for example. Um, but, uh, it, it when you're watching a silent movie, this and the kind of score for hack Hexen, um, you're kind of at the mercy of whoever is is writing it and a lot of the tone of the movie uh can be defined by that score even though you know it's not in control of it um i mean the more version of that we watch which is the kino release i think right yeah the blu-ray um i think has a good score which i think is the original score written for it Hmm. um or used for it um uh yeah, that is annoying and sucks that that happened. Uh, I think this movie is is genuinely very spook, like creepy at times. Yeah. Um, I th- I do think there are a lot of things that kind of seem quaint now to modern eyes, but were pretty. Um, I don't know if lavish is the right word in 1922, but like, yeah, there's a lot of effect stuff that is like you know, kind of crude stop motion or or undercranking um, things like that. But I think there's enough different techniques being used at any point that it it helps sort of hide some of the seams. Mm-hmm. Um, Hexen did a lot of that too. Hexen has like stop motion. It has like double exposure. It has like costumes. It has like coarse perspective. It has all these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, as does the, the I mean, I think they're similar movies in terms of their like effects techniques and some of their imagery. Right? Like, the devil in Hexen has, like, the long clawed fingers. So does Count Orlock in this movie. Uh, very famously, he's got his big fingernails. Um, yeah, there's, like, tons of just iconic images of silent film in this, of, like... Yeah. Cool shots of, like, um, you know, Orlock creeping up on Hutter, uh, and then mm-hmm. you, see, you see his silhouette in shadow... Uh, really, really iconic scene. Super cool shot. Amazing uh, shadow work in this movie. Yeah, totally. Like silhouette, like projected shadows. Um, there's an amazing, amazing shot of just the shadow of Count or like reaching out towards a door, and his fingers seem to elongate as they like 
the shadow kind of crosses over the um, the wall. Um, and it's like super simple, just figuring out like from the right angle, if we light this right, we can make this shadow of his fingers look super big and long and yeah. creepy. It's and cinema. it's like, yeah, it works really well. I do think kind of the edge that makes me think that Nosferatu is the better film over Hexen is it, it feels kind of more purely cinematic. Mm-hmm. Even though I think one of the really interesting things about Hexen is the way that it, it plays with form and the fact that it does have this sort of academic quality to it. This movie is just so good at using like film language um, that I think it, it gives it kind of the edge. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a really creepy. I mean, some stuff is just inherently cre- like the idea of a ship showing up to port and everyone on board is dead and no one knows why. It's just inherently a really creepy idea. Yeah, it's awesome. Full plague um, rats too. <laughs> yeah, a lot of plague stuff in this movie. Um, I actually, my sort of big take on this movie, I guess we'll get into that, is that this movie is, I don't know if it's that big a take that this movie is about the idea of like disease, hmm. but I think specifically just the, the, the time it was made, I think feels very significant that like there had just been this sort of global epidemic pandemic of influenza. Right. So there was like the idea of like spreading disease through travel was a thing mm-hmm. and then also like tuberculosis was still a big thing um and there was uh in sort of just reading about that um a thing that had just sort of started after world war one was using heliotherapy or just like using sunlight or uv rays to treat different types of tuberculosis or lupus and things like that was a sort of growing trend so there was already this thing of like sunlight killing disease that I think is, uh, and it's like right around the same time as this movie came out. So I'm like, there's to me, that seems like a pretty obvious connection, but like that is one of the sort of big thematic things of this movie, but maybe it's coincidence. I don't know. Um, it's yeah. It's hard to know what to say about this movie. Cause it's just like good. It's just like right, yeah. real solid. Um, there's, I don't know, I can just name a bunch of cool things in it that I liked. Um, Do it. Uh, I think Count Orlok is probably the scariest character in film that we've encountered thus far. Mm. That's my other big take on this movie, is that Count Orlok is genuinely very scary. Not just because of Max Shrek's performance. Max Shrek, the actor who plays Count Orlok, um, whose name is reused as Christopher Walken's character in Batman Returns. But it's, you know, he's got the iconic sort of bald head, like, you know, two front sharp vampire teeth thing with the hands and, you know, it's a very iconic performance of a vampire. And, mm-hmm. like, even that, like, vampire design, I still feel like pops up everywhere in, like, What We Do in the Shadows or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Salem's Lot, like... Vampire the, the Masquerade. Yeah. Um, exactly. Um, but just the, uh, this movie really kind of hammers home the idea that like, he doesn't even need to be near you to like get you. Right. So like the character of knock who is sort of loosely based on Renfield from the original Dracula story is like, he's just a guy living in Germany. He never even really meets Warlock and he still is like driven insane just like through, you know, 
hypnosis or whatever, like the the weird vampire powers. Yeah, there's all of this like stuff of like these weird like psychic connections uh, mm-hmm. or like visions that people have that are just anyone who is involved in the influence of Orlock like starts having these like nightmarish visions and and sometimes their mind goes away. Yeah. Like you really feel that Orlock is like a presence even more so than like an individual creature or person. Mm-hmm. Like um another thing that is really great we until like the very end we never see him like attack or kill anyone. We just see bodies piling up. Like so like he's getting transported from Transylvania to Germany on a ship and it's like we see him like come out of his coffin on the ship but then it's just like the next time we see the ship everyone's dead and it's mm-hmm. and then he arrives in the fictional town of uh Visburg in Germany and it's like so people just start dying and we start seeing like houses being marked with a cross of like there's disease here or uh there's a great shot of um uh was it Ellen who's the sort of Mina Harker character um looking out her window at a bunch of coffins that are being carried down the street um that is we just see like all this sort of like death and disease being spread around mm. um and it's enough just to know that like Orlock is there like we know he's behind it but it's just like we're just seeing like the after effects of his, you know, vampire uh, hijinks. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, there's like, I feel like just the way that he's shot and framed is really, really well done, really, really creepy. There's a shot that genuinely made me like shudder that is towards the end when he's uh, feeding on, a, on Ellen and he's like bent over her this you know biting her neck and it's like it's really really dark like there's shadows all over the place you really can just kind of see his eyes and like a little bit of like the silhouette of him like hunched over her on the bed and it's oh so creepy (laughs) it's like it's such like a classic like vampire image too Mm -hmm. uh yeah this movie's awesome for sure yeah Nosferatu. Nosferatu. It's great. Nosferatu. Yeah. A lot of people, not me, but I know a lot of people our age only know about this movie because of Spongebob. It's very funny. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, portrays Orlok as a a silly scamp who likes to flick light switches. (laughs) Also, whose name is Nosferatu? (laughs) I think his name is Sferatu. And they're saying no, oh. comma, Sferatu. Oh, okay. Yeah. See that? Yeah, makes sense. Um, uh, I did a bit of research about F.W. Murnau because I didn't know that much about him, like as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, he's another German director who fought in World War One and was haunted by it. <laughs> it's a lot of themes of like death in his films. Um. Uh, what I didn't realize that he actually, uh, he, so he moved to Hollywood in 1926, um, made Sunrise, one of the first movies to win a Best Picture Oscar. There were two, that and Wings both won like separate Best Picture awards that, that in 27. Um, I didn't realize he died in 1931 in a car accident. Oh, wow. Um, and 
another just weird thing about it is in 2015, someone broke into his grave and stole his skull. So his skull is missing. Someone has his skull somewhere. Maybe. Someone's Uh, trying to summon Nosferatu. Apparently there was like candle, they found like candle wax in his, uh, like near the, like his desecrated tomb. So yeah, there was some kind of likely ritualistic reasoning behind it. That's sick. Yeah, it's fucked up. Um, it's kind of cool though. <laughs> Cause yeah, I was like, I, I'm, I like any, um, you know, German filmmaker from the twenties. I'm like, what did he do later? Um, you don't have to find out. <laughs> don't have to find out, but also like, he seems like maybe the clearest case of someone who would have been super anti-fascist. Um, he was like a big lefty in, in, you know, uh, Weimar era Germany. So, hmm. As was Lotte Runniger, who yes. uh, fled fled Germany um, and was also, I think, pretty vehemently anti-fascist as well. And they only just got the word for that because fascism just started this year. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, right. Right. anything else to say about Nosferatu? Uh, I don't, no. Yeah. It's spooky. It's good, watch cool. it. Yes. Yeah. Go watch Nosferatu. Yeah. It is maybe my favorite movie that we've watched on like this whole show. So. Well, to get into our section of what your favorite episode is, uh, your favorite movie of this episode is. Uh, your favorite movie of the first decade, two and a half decades of film, Nosferatu. I, I think so. I think yeah. so. I think it takes a cake over like, uh, I don't know, trip. Uh, the other like big famous one that we watched, Trip to the Moon. Like, yeah, um, well, yeah. It's, that, it's twenty years later, so it should it, they should advance a little bit. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, but um, you know, well, there's a lot left to go in the twenties that I'm really excited about. But yeah, for sure. Um, um, I uh, I feel like I would be inclined to say Nosferatu because it's just such a solid movie. Uh, but I think it's boring when we pick the same movie, so I'll go with Hexen. Yeah. Yeah, good, uh, good job. <laughs> um, I think I think it's it's also good just to highlight both of those. Like they're both yeah. real interesting, real cool, very spooky movies. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter and whatnot uh, if you want to be updated uh, about our progress or maybe see a little uh, a little vloggy action uh, for. Uh, for, uh, for our visit to this film festival, post on the stories or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and we'll uh, yeah, just uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And uh, that that's it for this episode. Glenn? Yeah. I'll see you next year. See you next year. Only a woman can break his spell.